Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Wednesday, August 12, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today's show includes comments from LA County Board of Supervisors Chair Pro Tem Hilda Solis, followed by an update on COVID-19 led by Dr. Barbara Ferrer, Director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Thank you for listening, and to keep up with our department on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at LA Public Health. There's a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it, and we'll start with a welcome from Supervisor Solis. Thank you. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us today at our press briefing. As a county, we continue to meet the racial disparities head-on during the health crisis. This Monday, in partnership with Total Testing Solutions, we launched a testing site in Huntington Park and yesterday a testing site in the city of Azusa. Just today, we opened a testing site in partnership with the Mexican Consulate in MacArthur Park and around the Pico Union area. This is a necessary resource for the community. Recently, we saw the largest outbreak at a grocery store in LA County at the Food for Less, a little more than a half mile from the new MacArthur Park testing site. UFCW Local 770 has rightfully demanded safety measures are in place at this Food for Less and other grocery stores. Safety measures in workplaces are non-negotiable. But we also need to make testing available for the community in their neighborhoods. And I want to take a moment to remind our residents that COVID-19 testing is not a public charge. Please visit covid19.lacounty.gov testing for more information. Additionally, to serve people experiencing homelessness, the county has made a historic investment of $37 million to partially finance the Vignes Permanent Supportive Housing Development Project, a development I have long championed. COVID-19 has increased the urgency to build more housing, and I'm pleased to share this project, which would provide about 600 units of permanent housing for people currently experiencing homelessness and are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. To learn more, please visit my website, hildalsolis.org. Additionally, we continue to try to prevent more people from becoming homeless. About three-fourths of renters that have fallen behind on rent are Latinx or black. That is why the county allocated $100 million to create a COVID-19 rent relief program to assist renters with limited means, operated by Los Angeles County Development Authority. This will be one of the largest rent relief programs of its kind in the nation. This program is set to launch on Monday, August 17th, and will remain open for a two-week period, closing on August 31st. The program's goal is to assist between 8,000 to 9,000 households. Applications will be accepted from August 17th through August 31st. To see the criteria and to apply, residents can visit 211LA.org or call 211. The hotline will be available from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day during the application period, and there will be representatives to assist in different languages. Additionally, the county has an emergency rent relief program, providing rent payments to property owners on behalf of income-eligible households. This program is open to property owners with rental units located in the unincorporated areas of the 1st District. Applications will be accepted through August 31st, 2020 or until funds have been exhausted. This emergency rental assistance program provides a dual benefit for two segments of our communities that are hurting. For income eligible renters that were impacted by the pandemic, it will provide a lifeline to assist in paying their rent. 
And for our property owner community, many of whom are mom and pop providers, it will provide help to meet their mortgage obligations on rental properties. To learn more, please email rentrelief at lakta.org or call 626-943-3800. I also want to remind us that we continue to see the impact of this virus on children. In the Central Valley of California, a teenager tragically died of COVID-19. At a summer camp in Georgia, hundreds of children came down with COVID-19 after not wearing masks. And here in LA County, we continue to see cases of multiple system inflammatory syndrome among children in LA County. This is a condition related to COVID-19 where body parts can become inflamed. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that children are at risk of developing severe symptoms requiring admission to an intensive care unit. This is especially true for brown and black children who are more likely to, re to require hospitalization of COVID-19. Tragically, Latino children are eight times as likely as white children to be hospitalized and black children were five times as likely. An analysis of over 500 children hospitalized for COVID in 14 states found that one out of three was admitted to the ICU. This is a similar rate for adults. In short, children are not immune to COVID-19 or its symptoms. Please continue to take this seriously. And now I would like to introduce Dr. Barbara Ferrer. Um, thank you so much, Supervisor Solis, and to the entire Board of Supervisors. Uh, your compassionate leadership has inspired our countywide commitment to serve and support our most vulnerable residents since the very start of the pandemic. And good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today I wanted to just talk about a couple of groups of uh, residents who live here in LA County who we think are most vulnerable for serious illness uh, from COVID-19. And one group is uh, obviously those people uh, who are our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and they're uh, particularly vulnerable because the very nature of uh, being a person experiencing homelessness makes it an almost impossible task to implement many of our prevention efforts. And, and homelessness was a crisis long before COVID-19. Um, and the fact is that uh, people who are experiencing homelessness are at much higher risk for poor health outcomes from just about every disease. Um, so it is particularly troubling uh, for us uh, as we live through a pandemic um, that uh, one of the groups of folks that already had high rates of suffering from excess uh, morbidity, excess disease rates, um, is now also a group that could be at much higher risk for having very bad outcomes associated with COVID-19. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the data today. I'm also going to uh, introduce, um, when I'm done, uh, the Department of Health Services, um, Dr. Heidi, uh, before us, who is in charge of the response for the county, really, on making sure we're aligning resources to protect people experiencing homelessness, particularly around making sure they have adequate resources to connect uh, with health care and with the services that support health and well-being. Uh, we have made some efforts here uh, as a county, you know, particularly around uh, using street outreach teams uh, to make sure we were working with people who were living in the encampments or staying in the encampments, and also working with um, our wonderful partners who are, in fact, providing shelter uh, and support 
um, at uh, many different locations uh, throughout the county. Uh, part of the work was ensuring that uh, there were good infection control measures at any of the shelters or interim housing locations, uh, as well as capacity for quarantining and isolating people who were either infected or close contacts of people who were infected. Uh, but the other part of our work was making it possible uh, for people who needed support while they were quarantining and isolating, particularly people experiencing homelessness, uh, for us to have safe places uh, for folks to go. And those are our quarantine and isolation facilities. And I know uh, Heidi will talk about that shortly. Uh, we also have our project room key, which allows us to uh, really take into account uh, some of the conditions that could put some people experiencing homelessness at much higher risk uh, for a devastating illness and actually be able to move them into uh, safe places where they can protect themselves uh, from coming into contact with people who may be transmitting the virus. So, you know, I want to really applaud all of the county departments, our city partners, uh, our provider, uh, you know, organizations and our community-based organizations. And I think working uh, with people experiencing homelessness, uh, as you'll see, there's been uh, a really comprehensive response uh, that I think has um, really prevented us from seeing uh, the, the higher rate of devastation uh, that we could have seen had we not had such a collaborative effort from the very beginning. Um, before I, um, you know, also uh, present our information on our daily rates, and I want to also talk about what's the work that's going on in skilled nursing facilities uh, and an update about our healthcare workers and uh, how they're faring. I do want to uh, start uh, with uh, an update on our approach to reopening colleges and universities. Uh, colleges and universities are an important driver of innovation, cultural vibrancy, and economic activity in the county. At the same time, the very nature of the way that colleges and universities operate creates a significant risk of outbreaks of COVID-19 among students, faculty, and staff. And these risks extend beyond the campus into our broader community. For this reason, we have decided, consistent with guidance from the state, to limit the reopening of colleges and universities until we're able to slow the spread of the infection at a higher rate here in the county. This means that colleges and universities may continue their essential operations, but that most academic instruction will continue to be done via distance learning. Institutions may continue to offer some limited in-person training and instruction, but that's only for students who are or will become part of the essential workforce, and it's only for required activities that cannot be accomplished through virtual learning. This mostly is about labs and practicums. All other academic instruction must continue to be done via distance learning. Faculty and other staff uh, can come to the campus for the purpose of providing distance learning and other activities that are related uh, to the purpose above, as well as maintaining any basic operations. Uh, colleges and universities will need to limit their on-campus student residency to only providing housings for students who have no alternative housing options. And finally, colleges and universities can allow collegiate sports to proceed but only if they're in compliance with the state's interim guidance for collegiate athletics and 
with the NCAA, the NCAA uh, guidance and protocols. I know that this is disheartening news for so many of the students who are looking forward to life on campus, but this postponement does mean that we'll continue to slow the spread of COVID-19 across the county and get to the point where we can return to campus when our rates of community transmission are significantly lower. And before I begin the presentation on uh, some of the information I wanted to talk about about our most vulnerable residents, I do want to start with the daily data. And I'll also have today some additional trend data by age groups. I am sad to report an additional 58 deaths. 19 of the people who died are over the age of 80. And 16 people in this age group had underlying health conditions. 24 of the people who passed away are between the ages of 65 and 79, and 17 people who passed away in this age group had underlying health conditions. 11 people who died are between the ages of 50 and 64, and nine people in this age group also had underlying health conditions. Three people who passed away are between the ages of 30 and 49, and three of the people in this age group, all of them, had underlying health conditions. There is one death that's being reported by the city of Long Beach, and information on this person is available at longbeach.gov. This does bring the total number of deaths to 5,109 in LA County. And our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who suffered such a significant loss of a person that they loved. And we're really sorry, and we keep you in our prayers and our thoughts. 92% of the people who have died from COVID-19 have had underlying health conditions. But as I've noted before, uh, that leaves 8% of the people who have passed away without underlying health conditions. And it does mean for all of us uh, that this disease uh, can be devastating, uh, whether you've had underlying health conditions or you don't. And we all need to take care to protect each other. For the 4,801 people who have passed away where race and ethnicity has been identified, 50% are Latino, Latinx, 24% are white, 15% are Asian, 10% are black, slightly less than 1% are Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander, and 1% identified with another race or ethnicity. We are also reporting 2,428 new cases today. This includes close to 700 cases that are from the backlog uh, that was being reported by the state. We have started to receive uh, some of the backlog labs and I'll be including those uh, in the reports every day, trying to delineate between which are backlog cases and which cases are current. This brings the total number of cases in LA County to 214,197. And these cases include a total of 9,210 cases reported by our partners in the city of Long Beach and 2,113 cases reported by the city of Pasadena. We're also reporting among uh, the total number of cases that we have here in LA County, there's 1,278 confirmed cases among people experiencing homelessness. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about some of the data we have uh, on people experiencing homelessness and their experiences with COVID-19. Uh, there's 1,538 confirmed cases of people who are currently hospitalized, 
about 32% of the people who are hospitalized are in the ICU, and about 19% of people are on ventilators. And I want to note that we continue to see a declining trend in daily hospitalizations. We have investigated a total of 1,428 residential congregate settings and non-residential settings with at least one confirmed case of COVID-19. Currently, we have active investigations at 902 sites, and there are 526 sites where we have closed investigations. And remember, a closed investigation means for 14 days we haven't seen any new cases of COVID-19. Residential settings include nursing homes, assisted living facilities, shelters, treatment centers, supportive living, and correctional facilities. Non-residential settings include workplaces, food and retail, and educational settings. The total number of confirmed cases in our institutional settings is 29,295, including 15,390 cases among residents and 13,905 among staff. I'm sad to report that 2,346 residents in institutional settings have died from COVID-19. 2,121 of the people who passed away in institutional settings did reside in our skilled nursing facilities. Of the 57 newly reported deaths today, excluding the death in Long Beach, eight were residents in our skilled nursing facilities. That's about 14%. And it's so difficult for us to share this data because we know there are so many people in our communities that are experiencing a profound loss right now of a loved one who resided in an institutional setting. And our hearts are going out to you. We are reporting 3,485 confirmed cases at some point in the jails. 3,099 are among people who are incarcerated and 386 are among staff. The Sheriff's Office is reporting today for their facilities 26 people who are incarcerated who are positive, 53 uh, people who are incarcerated that are in isolation, and 1,086 people who are incarcerated who are quarantined. There are 197 cases in the state prison, 137 are among people who are incarcerated, and 60 are among staff. And there's 757 cases in the federal prison facilities. 741 are among people who are incarcerated and 16 among staff. Today we had a slight increase in the number of cases in our juvenile facilities. It's now at 126 cases. That includes 50 among youth and 76 among staff. There's 1,984,394 people that have been tested here in LA County and had results reported to the LA County Department of Public Health and 10% of the people tested were positive. I do wanna offer a little bit of context to the daily data and take a look at the trends we're seeing by age group. And I'll take the first slide. Uh, this slide shows the daily average case rate per 100,000 people uh, by age group. You can see that starting in mid-June, the cases increased steeply amongst our younger adults. That's represented by the blue and yellow lines in this chart. Both lines peaked in the middle of July, and while now they're considerably lower than they were in the middle of July, they still represent the highest case rates among all residents. The yellow line, which represents uh, young adults ages 18 to 29, has the highest case rate 
among all age groups in LA County. The blue line, which is just below the yellow line on the top, represents people ages uh, 30 to 49. The explosive growth in cases shows that these two age groups are driving the infections in LA County at this time, and they're making up the bulk. It's slightly more than 60% of all of our new cases. If you, uh, if you look at all of our cases between the ages of zero and uh, 50, they're making up uh, closer to 70% of all of the cases uh, here in LA County, new cases here in LA County. Um, if you could see that the next group are ages, adults ages 50 to 64, this is our green line. It has a similar trajectory over the same period, although it's a lot less steep, meaning that there's been a more gradual increase and now a slighter decrease in cases amongst this group of adults. I'll take the next slide. This slide looks at hospitalizations by age group between March and the end of July. And here you can see that adults ranging in age from 30 to 65 make up the majority of hospitalized cases, with people in these age groups accounting for about 50% of all of our hospitalized cases. In the middle of the chart, uh, you'll see the brown line, uh, and the brown line represents hospitalizations for individuals who are 80 years and older, and you can see the significant decline uh, in hospitalizations for our oldest residents. Individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 29 are shown in the yellow line, and that's representing, and it's been increasing, about 9 to 10% of all of our hospitalized cases. And at the very bottom of the chart are the trend lines for children under the age of 18, and they account for a very small percentage of hospitalizations, but this number is still uh, in the hundreds. So uh, there are children who are, in fact, sick enough uh, to require hospitalizations. We'll take the next slide. Um, as you can see in this slide, uh, since May, deaths are trending down for all age categories. Uh, we've seen significant declines uh, in deaths. The steepest decline is among those over 80 years old, where the average death rate has declined from almost five deaths per 100,000 people to slightly less than one death per 100,000 people. And that's the yellow, yellow line uh, at the top of the table. Um, uh, these, are, these is partly due to interventions that were implemented both in skilled nursing facilities and at our hospitals where emergency, emerging therapies are being used uh, to actually reduce the mortality rate, particularly amongst uh, older people. Uh, now I do want to talk a little bit about uh, what people experiencing homelessness uh, have, uh, have had in terms of uh, their exposures to COVID-19, uh, and, and also want to talk a little bit about the wonderful people who are working with them. Uh, so there have been uh, 1,278 COVID-19 cases amongst people experiencing homelessness, and we've had 139 cases amongst shelter and interim housing staff. There have been 31 deaths among people experiencing homelessness and two deaths among people uh, who were staff at our shelters. These are all tragic deaths and I send my condolences to those who are mourning our most vulnerable residents and also for those who were caring for them. Uh, now we've, uh, we've conducted about 161 outbreak investigations at homeless shelters homeless encampments, 
uh, with homeless service providers and at hygiene centers. And we can take the next slide, uh, which actually shows um, in the next slide. Uh, it, it shows a little bit of information by setting uh, on where we're seeing some of our cases among people experiencing homelessness. We have been tracking this information uh, for a long time, since the beginning of the pandemic. This slide goes all the way back to March, uh, and it's a week-by-week -week look at our case counts for people in shelters, people in encampments, people who are experiencing homelessness and living in some of the other settings, and people who are experiencing homelessness and living in settings that we uh, don't know about. And you can see pretty much consistently for the past few months uh, across all of the settings, we've seen a similar trend line, similar numbers of cases, uh, but there have been some ups and downs, particularly in the shelters, which is the top green line, where we saw outbreaks early on. While this data continues to show that people experiencing homelessness are at risk for exposures in all of the settings, the collaborative efforts on the part of county employees, our city partners, service providers, and community-based organizations have been able to contain the spread of COVID-19 fairly well in this highly vulnerable population. And you're gonna hear in a few minutes from our partners at the Department of Health Services uh, what these efforts included, uh, which really allowed us to move people to quarantine and isolation opportunities uh, that uh, meant that we could stop some of the spread and also a very robust testing program. There's also a lot of education uh, that was done by service providers, by shelters, and other agencies um, with, the, uh, with their um, guests who uh, were experiencing homelessness around infection control. And, and we thank everyone for all the work that they've done. We'll take the next slide. On this slide, uh, we're looking at our outbreak investigations amongst persons experiencing homelessness again over time. Uh, we initiate what we call an outbreak investigation uh, in settings where there are people experiencing homelessness as soon as there's one case confirmed. There are only two places where one case is a trigger for an immediate investigation. That's at our skilled nursing facilities and at our shelters uh, and encampments. We do this so that we can get in early, uh, try to contain the virus, and slow the spread among other people who are living and or working uh, at these sites. Uh, you can see again um, that uh, while there's been some increases recently at the homeless shelters, um, for the most part, we've had fairly stable numbers of, uh, of outbreak investigations uh, in settings where people experiencing homelessness may be staying. Um, and again, we, we will continue to try to post all this information online so people can spend more time looking at it, but you can see that we have, you know, well over 150 ongoing investigations right now. Uh, thank you. On, uh, we'll do the, the next slide now um, as we shift and talk about another key vulnerable population that we're monitoring, which are those people who are living and working in our skilled nursing facilities and other long-term care facilities. We did a recent survey that we do every week uh, among skilled nursing facilities as part of our efforts to get in front of any potential outbreaks and identify facilities that might need the most support. Um, and so we regularly survey skilled nursing facilities on their compliance with mandated COVID-19 surveillance testing. 
Uh, our last week's results for 340 skilled nursing facilities had every single facility uh, sending us their information. Uh, there, are, um, there are a total of 14,100 nursing home residents who were tested, and of all of the nursing home residents who were tested across the 340 skilled nursing facilities, this is a sample of about 10% of the residents, 392 or slightly under 3% were positive. I want to note that um, uh, there were a total of 22,166 staff that were tested, and amongst the staff, 1.7% uh, tested positive, again, across all of the facilities. I do want to note that among these facilities, we have 234 that are in what we call an outbreak situation. That means they haven't gone 14 days yet without having any new cases. Uh, we have 106 skilled nursing facilities that, have, that are in a no outbreak situation. That means they haven't had any new cases in the last 14 days. If you look at the results at the 106 non-outbreak skilled nursing facilities, the rate of positivity there on the surveillance testing was under 1% and less than 100 people. Um, so this is good news for us that we continue to see both a overall decline in people testing positive at the skilled nursing facilities, but also uh, particularly in facilities where there are no active outbreaks, uh, we don't have a lot of positive cases. I do want to note also wherever we found a positive case with the surveillance testing, uh, that, nursing, uh, sk that skilled nursing facility will now go in and test everyone uh, who's both working and residing at that facility to make sure that early on we find anybody who's positive uh, and their close contacts so that they can be isolated and, and or quarantined. Um, these low positivity rates reflect a lot of work that's been done over many months. I want to thank our partners. Uh, and it is clear that we do know what steps need to be taken uh, to slow the spread and protect our vulnerable uh, elders. Uh, we have to continue to do the work on and making sure that there's access to essential personal protective equipment in the nursing homes for everyone who's working there so that our workers can stay safe. Uh, we also continue to do a lot of training uh, on how people can appropriately use uh, that personal protective equipment. Our staff are out there every day making uh, both in-person visits and telephone calls to all of our skilled nursing facilities. This allows us to both provide guidance about infection control strategies, as well as to follow up where we think there needs to be additional support to ensure that best practices are being adhered to. Uh, I know we saw far too many deaths uh, earlier this year, uh, but I'm really glad that our partnership with the skilled nursing facilities has resulted in some measurable improvements in the outcomes as you see on this slide here. This graph, and I show it every week, uh, shows the rolling seven-day average of daily COVID-19 deaths. Uh, that's the top line, the green line, and then the seven-day average of COVID-19 deaths among residents at skilled nursing facilities, which is the bottom line. Uh, and you can see we're starting to have a steeper decline overall for the county, but impressively, um, skilled nursing homes uh, really, um, for many weeks now, uh, has been in a steady decline. We didn't see the increase in deaths that we saw in mid-July amongst the general population. 
um, quite as hard uh, in our skilled nursing facilities. It actually stayed fairly constant in a declining pattern. This is good news, and as I said before, it does mean that our safeguards are working, but we do have to continue to ensure compliance so that we can have containment at all of these higher risk settings where vulnerable residents are living and many workers are really uh, doing everything they can to take care of them. I'll take the next slide. Uh, we've always uh, are keeping our eye on racial and ethnic inequities as they relate to this virus. Uh, and today I have a little bit of new data that I want to present to you that shows the racial and ethnic breakdown of those who have tragically passed away due to COVID-19 while either living or working at skilled nursing facilities. This table, as you can see, breaks out deaths among skilled nursing facility residents and skilled nursing facility workers by race and ethnicity. Among residents, you see that Latinx and white residents each made up about 30% of the people who passed away uh, from, um, passed away at SNFs. Uh, from COVID-19. Uh, this is followed by Asian residents at 21% and our black residents at these facilities at about 14%. By comparison, among the healthcare workers in skilled nursing facilities, the vast majority, 57%, are Latinx and another 37% are Asian. Uh, black and white healthcare workers both accounted for about 3% of the deaths. In part, this is a reflection of who is working uh, in our skilled nursing facilities. Uh, They're supported by a lot of Filipino workers, Asian workers, and Latinos, Latinx workers. All of these deaths are devastating to the family and friends who loved the people who have passed away and to the community of healthcare workers that are caring for some of our uh, most vulnerable residents. And this does lead us to our next slide, uh, which is uh, at the heart of our response to caring for the most vulnerable are our healthcare workers. And we have to continue to ensure that they're protected every day as they do their life-saving work. So let's start with this data on where our healthcare workers are presenting with COVID-19 infections. These are the occupational settings for healthcare workers that tested positive. Uh, this slide shows um, the occupational settings where the highest number of cases have been reported. Uh, healthcare workers who are employed in skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities continue to make up the highest proportion of cases at 34%. We'll take, uh, we'll take the next slide. Uh, the next slide looks at the occupational role of healthcare workers um, who passed away from COVID-19. We have had, tragically, a total of 79 COVID-19-related deaths among healthcare workers in LA County. And as we reported before, nurses, and this includes licensed vocational nurses and practical nurses, continue to account for most of the deaths among healthcare workers at about 44%. And that's followed then by caregivers at 10%. We'll take the next slide. Uh, this slide shows the occupational settings with the highest number of deaths uh, reported for healthcare workers. You can see that healthcare workers uh, at skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities account for the majority of the tragic uh, deaths, and they're at 62%. These are immense and irreplaceable losses squarely attributed to the work that our healthcare workers do every day. We grieve with the families who are in mourning, and we must honor these heroic workers 
by doing our part to slow the spread of COVID-19. I'll take the next slide. One part of uh, making sure that uh, we are honoring uh, the work that's being done by healthcare workers is making sure that they have uh, their personal protection equipment. Um, and uh, the science is clear about how important it is for healthcare workers to have what we call PPE. This is masks, gloves, face shields, gowns, and other equipment because they play an important role in preventing the spread of COVID-19. Part of the work at the Department of Public Health is making sure that organizations and institutions that are caring for some of our highest risk residents have the necessary PPE to keep staff and patients safe. The Department of Public Health, we've distributed a total of 24 million pieces of personal protective equipment. And this is to organizations including long-term care facilities, adult residential care centers, assisted living facilities, and homeless shelters. Uh, there's 50% of the PPE that's been distributed has gone to long-term care facilities. 40% has gone to adult residential daycare centers and assisted living sites. And 10% has been distributed to uh, social service providers. And this includes uh, many of, our, of the people who are working in our homeless shelters, our domestic violence shelters, our gang intervention outreach workers, and other community-based organizations. From July 10th just to August 10th, we distributed 11 million pieces of uh, PPE. Uh, and again, um, some of this comes from, uh, to us from the state, so we appreciate all their support. Uh, we've gotten N95 respirators, gowns, and masks from the state. The next slide. Uh, so these are healthcare workers that are working outside of the hospital care system. But it's also important to be certain that the healthcare workers that are at the hospitals are protected. And I wanna thank our colleagues at EMS and our hospital partners for ensuring that we have an adequate supply of PPE across all of these care sites. Uh, this slide shows us that we're well above the state mandated target that at least 60% of our hospitals have more than 15 days supply on hand of PPE. This, combined with the county's current PPE availability, does give us confidence that we continue to have the supplies we need to help make sure that our healthcare workers are safe, as safe as possible, while they're doing their life-saving work. And in closing, I want to thank you for your attention to these important issues. We do continue to monitor how our county as a whole is faring in this pandemic, uh, but it really is important to always stop and pay close attention to how those who are most vulnerable uh, are doing and those who are caring for them are doing. Uh, we can't actually uh, see our way out of this pandemic. We can't even see our way to slow the rates of transmission if we don't make sure that our most vulnerable, our highest risk, and our hardest, risk our hardest hit communities have access to all of the resources they need to make sure that transmission rates are reduced, illness and death rates are also reduced. And this remains a top priority. As individuals, we can do our part. We wear our face coverings. We avoid crowds. We don't gather with people we don't live with. And we continue to stay home as much as possible. Uh, as businesses, we put in place all of the protections so that our workers feel safe and customers are also protected as they come in for their services. We take this action for ourselves, our families, 
and for the most vulnerable who are among us here in LA County. And now I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Heidi Beforus, who will provide updates from the Department of Health Services and the Housing for Health Division. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Ferrer, for your tireless and strong leadership during these unprecedented times. Uh, my name is Dr. Heidi Beffrews. I am the Medical Director of Housing for Health, which is a program of the Department of Health Services at LA County. Today, in light of what my colleague, Dr. Ferrer, just shared on the efforts to serve our homeless population, in the fight against COVID-19, I wanna share a bit about how the Department of Health Services is supporting this work. Let me begin by taking a step back and sharing a bit about Housing for Health. It was established in 2012 and was designed to provide a continuum of services to people experiencing homelessness who are particularly medically vulnerable, have complex physical and behavioral health issues. And our goal is to try to improve their care and well-being um, by wrapping around them and not only providing housing supports and resources, but also making sure that they're connected to health and able to pursue uh, well-being and happiness in their lives. Um, we share responsibility with the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority to manage the majority of the funding that comes from Measure H and Proposition H to provide critical services to people experiencing homelessness here in our county. Uh, we work with many homeless service provider agencies um, and provide extensive services. We have 80 multidisciplinary teams, outreach workers out in all eight spas who serve unsheltered clients who live on the streets and in encampments. We have over 3,000 interim housing beds, including medical respite for people who need on-site clinical care while they recover and wait for housing. We have helped over 10,000 people move into permanent supportive housing. That means not only do they get the housing voucher, but they also get an intensive case manager to support them with their life needs and social service needs. We also have a program called CBEST, which helps clients get the benefits for which they're eligible um, so that they can lift out of poverty and pursue well-being. We also run two primary care clinics in the Skid Row area and have really tried to embed clinical services, so physical health, mental health, um, addiction services into all of our outreach and care services. We work very collaboratively with city and county um, agencies, as well as our community-based homeless service providers to provide these services. And of course, we've all banded together to really address the COVID-19 pandemic. As Dr. Ferrer discussed, uh, we've been able to apply swift action and have really been able to support people experiencing homelessness to not fall sick from COVID and have fortunately been successful in minimizing the spread of COVID among this very vulnerable population. Today, I wanted to share information about three areas of support that Housing for Health is providing alongside its partners in the Department of Public Health, Department of Mental Health, LASA, 
the city and countless uh, service provider agencies. First, uh, we have created COVID response teams. Uh, the goal of these teams is to really help prevent COVID infection among people experiencing homelessness and to make sure that people who are sick are connected to care so that we can prevent complications and death. As I mentioned, LA County has been largely successful in meeting those goals. Those experiencing homelessness, as Dr. Ferrer discussed, are particularly vulnerable to high rates of spread and are at high risk for poor outcomes if they do become infected. We were very careful to start testing early on in the course of the pandemic, and DHS has been providing resources to provide testing in both sheltered and unsheltered settings. Um, and we're doing both diagnostic testing, that means testing of symptomatic people to see if they have COVID or another flu-like illness, as well as what we call surveillance testing, which is weekly testing of samples of clients and staff to see if there is asymptomatic infection so that we can get ahead of it and prevent the spread of COVID in the community. If an outbreak is identified, we collaborate with the Department of Public Health to contain the infection. We have established over 20 COVID response teams to support these infection control efforts in both sheltered and unsheltered settings. The CRTs are staffed by providers, nurses, EMTs, and program assistants. They go into shelters and encampments and conduct site assessments. They provide training and technical assistance to staff and clients alike. They help conduct the actual COVID testing of the clients and the staff. They make sure that infection control practices can be carried out in those settings. And also if anyone is sick with COVID or symptomatic, help get them to a medical shelter so that they can be taken care of. And again, we can limit the spread of infection. The COVID response teams are operating seven days per week. We have eight teams operating in sheltered settings and 15 teams operating in the unsheltered settings. As of yesterday, Housing for Health has done over 23,000 COVID tests uh, among people experiencing homelessness. And fortunately, we have consistently seen positivity rates of about 2% among people in sheltered and unsheltered environments. CRTs have provided wraparound services at over 790 encampments throughout our eight spas. In addition to providing support around infection control, we've also provided tents, meals, hygiene kits, medical supports, and make sure that vulnerable people are entering a safe shelter. The second service that Housing for Health has supported is our medical shelter or our isolation and quarantine program for LA County residents. The medical shelter program was first implemented in March. It was an effort to make sure that people who were infected with COVID or had symptoms of COVID had somewhere to go to essentially shelter in place and prevent spread of infection throughout the community. These individuals may not have been able to shelter in place either because they did not have a home or they were worried that they might infect people in their home. So we have successfully served people experiencing homelessness as well as people who do have a home but need a safe place to shelter to protect their loved ones. There are four medical shelter sites at present. 
with a total of 397 beds. Our occupancy rates have averaged about 50 to 60 percent, and we anticipate increased occupancy as we enter cold and flu season. Initially, the medical shelter program was managed by the LA County Office of Emergency Management, but was transitioned to the Department of Health Services on July 1st. Referrals to the medical shelter program are managed by the Department of Public Health. The public health nurses there operate call centers seven days a week and have triaged over 5,000 calls. Uh, the medical shelter staff then receive those referrals. We operate 24-7. In addition to providing clinical care, help people bridge to housing, as well as provide social support services, meals, laundry, etc. To date, we have served approximately 2,400 clients in our medical shelter sites, and approximately 60% of those individuals were experiencing homelessness at the time of referral. As of today, there are 171 individuals in our medical shelter programs. The average length of stay is about 10 days, after which they're released once they're no longer deemed infections and are clear to return to the community. Finally, Housing for Health has provided a third area of support for those experiencing homelessness. We've provided meals and personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, et cetera, to both clients and staff across the county. Since April, we've distributed over 620,000 meals to people experiencing homelessness. This helps individuals stay in place and not have to enter into high-density settings to feed themselves. We've also distributed 2,000 pantry boxes to families who are living in housing but need support to be able to stay there safely. We are grateful for the continued partnership of various agencies, the city, groups countywide, and because of our collective effort, we've been able to minimize the spread of COVID among people experiencing homelessness and continue to provide essential clinical and social services to our valued community members. I'd now like to hand it over to Dr. Roger Lewis to provide an update on the DHS COVID modeling efforts. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Roger Lewis, and I'm leading the Los Angeles County Predictive Modeling Team within the Department of Health Services. And today, I'd like to give a weekly update on our modeling results. Um, as you know, the DHS modeling efforts are designed to understand and predict the need for and the demand for hospital-based healthcare services due to COVID-19 in Los Angeles County. We track the numbers of new daily hospitalizations because that allows us to understand what happened in our communities approximately two to three weeks ago with respect to the spread of COVID-19. That two to three week delay is because transmission that occurred two to three weeks ago is manifested in the new cases that we see today. Today, I'm happy to report that I have some good news. So let's start by looking at the new hospital patient projections from the model and how that's changed from last week. If I could have the first slide. So this uh, slide or graphic from last week showed the prediction, which is shown by the white line, and then the future prediction, which is shown by the red shaded area for the number of daily new cases. And we started to see a slight decline that was very hopeful in terms of the future number of new cases. This meant that the model predicted a future decline in cases 
if the transmission rate in the community stayed the same, meaning we continued to be effective in slowing and preventing the spread. Next slide. The projections that have been updated with additional weeks worth of data this week make the decrease even clearer. The number of daily new cases is now very similar to the lower numbers that we saw in May. So while we are still seeing transmission, the numbers that we see every day are going down and we are back to the numbers we were seeing uh, a month or two ago. Thus, if the transmission rate stays the same, the model projects, as shown by the red shaded area, a consistent and more significant decreases in future cases. Next slide. So this slide shows the effective transmission number, or R, and how it has changed over time in response to the behavior of everyone in our efforts to protect ourselves and reduce the spread in our community. As you can see by the white line, there's been a continued decrease in the effective transmission number, and that effective transmission number, which reflects the average number of new infections created by each current infection, is now estimated to be about 0.86. Last week, that estimate was about 0.91, and now the uncertainty in that estimate uh, does not include one, so it is clearly below one. This is absolutely good news, but it does not mean that transmission has stopped. Instead, it means that on average for every seven patients or pe persons who are currently infected with COVID-19, a six new, new cases uh, will be created by those people currently infected. Some of those newly infected people will become very ill or may even die from their illness. And this means that transmission is still occurring that we need to continue to follow the recommendations of our public health professionals and continue to work diligently to protect ourselves, our families, and those around us. That is the key to keeping the R below one and having the number of new cases continue to decrease in the days ahead as predicted by the model. Similarly, last week the model suggested that about one in 510 persons in Los Angeles County were currently infected and infectious to others. This week, that number is lower, and estimate, we estimate that approximately one in every 725 persons are infected and infectious in LA County. Again, this shows a, a continued decrease in cases and transmission. In getting to this point, the model suggests that about one in eight persons within Los Angeles County have been infected with COVID-19, although many of those infections may have been um, asymptomatic or minimally uh, symptomatic. So again, we've seen a clear decline, and this means that two to three weeks ago, the rates of transmission of COVID-19 began to slow in our communities. The data that we see today in terms of new hospitalization reflects what was happening two to three weeks ago. Because of that interval from transmission to developing symptomatic disease to becoming ill enough that one seeks hospital-based care. Based on these, what we've seen and the predictions of the model, the current number of available hospital beds, staffed intensive care unit beds, and ventilators in Los Angeles County are likely to be adequate over the next four weeks. So to summarize, the consistent downtrend in new cases requir requiring hospitalization and the slight decrease in transmission rate is good news. This is what progress looks like when we work together. We are seeing this shift because of the consistent and diligent efforts of each and every one of us to minimize spread. We wear masks, 
wash our hands, distance when we're outside the home, and staying home whenever possible. The reality is that in order for this progress to be sustained, it is up to us. We still have many, many highly susceptible persons in Los Angeles County, and if the rate of transmission increased, we could see this progress uh, reverse. We must keep our practices going on, and if we keep this up, um, I'm sorry, if we let up, the virus will have new opportunities to persist and even to increase its spread. So the bottom line is that overall, the efforts of those of us in Los Angeles County and the LA County residents to contain and minimize the spread of COVID-19 is working. Let's keep it up. Thank you very much, and I believe we will move to questions. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press one, then followed by zero. And our first question comes from David Rosenfeld from the LA Daily News. Please go ahead. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much. Uh, I wonder if um, uh, you could comment on the possibility of uh, seeing a wave of evictions, and I wonder how you think that will affect uh, the spread of the virus. And also, um, you know, I feel like a lot of people are looking for some grain of hope here to say when we could possibly uh, imagine coming out of uh, our, our, the state of our lives right now. And I, just, I never really hear it from you guys. It sounds like, you know, we're just sort of, we're improving, but it's so very slow. And I just wonder what you can offer folks. It sounds like we're, we're, we're back to where we were about a month and a half ago, which is okay sounding, but that, that's still very discouraging for those of us who are so tired of living with these restrictions. So I'm just wondering if you can offer any uh, prognosis as far as time frames at this, at this time. Thanks. Well, well, this is Supervisor Solis. So I'll just touch base on the uh, fact that there is going to be some liftings of uh, moratoriums on evictions. But here in the county, we've extended that until September. We're also waiting for relief from the federal government. So I'm hopeful that there'll still be some opportunity between now and the next couple of weeks, perhaps, where there may be uh, some movement so that we can get relief here at the county so that we can provide the support that's necessary for those families uh, and folks that have not been working. Um, and I would say, yes, it is, it is something that is that is on our minds if there is uh, evictions and people are out in the streets, obviously that's going to increase the potential for people becoming homeless and also being uh, impacted by the coronavirus. So all of those things are very, very uh, critical, critically important to many of us here, and we're trying to make the right decisions. Uh, time frame for when we're going to get out of this, I think the doctors and the data will be the ones to talk about that. But I think we've done everything, uh, logically speaking, based on data, based on scientific evidence, and based on what we have in terms of our workforce that's working very diligently around the clock in the county to help us uh, mitigate and do the very best we can. I know it's hard. It's painful. Um, believe me, this is something that no one, I, I think, uh, has ever experienced, but we're trying to work it out together. Best way that we can reduce uh, the time that we have to spend in our homes is if we can make sure that people adhere to those health orders. And Dr. Ferrer has been saying that. I've been saying it. Many of us have for the last couple of months. So we still have to do much, much more to protect ourselves and protect others. I'll let uh, Dr. Ferrer uh, add any additional comments. Yeah, thank you. And I think Supervisor Solis, you know, said it best. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, this is a virus and it's a deadly virus and it's very easily transmitted. Uh, and I know it is sometimes so depressing to think 
um, that in spite of all of the sacrifices so many people have made, pretty much everybody has made at this point, um, to get us to a place where we're finally back to slowing the spread, it doesn't mean that we get to stop uh, living in this world where we've modified our behaviors. Pretty much almost everything we do when we get out of the house uh, is part of a, a changed uh, new normal for us. I mean, I feel hopeful for two reasons, so maybe this helps a little bit. The first reason is uh, we've now twice uh, managed to figure out under different circumstances and with different evidence how we can actually slow the spread here in L.A. County. We're the largest county in the country, and we have a lot of diversity. Um, so I think the, the first thing that makes me feel hopeful is with a new virus in this county, we've now twice figured out how to really slow the spread. And, and Dr. Lewis showed us, you know, that really results in a significant amount of less transmission. Uh, but in order to do that, um, the second part that also makes me feel hopeful is that we have to use the tools we have. Sometimes you could actually face a threat where nothing you really can do at the moment will offer you the kinds of protections that would make a difference. We are not there. We have tools and the tools work. So, you know, that gives me hope. Uh, the tools we have right now work, and scientists and researchers all across the world are working on a whole nother set of tools that include a lot more therapeutics, medicines that people can take when they're infected, uh, a vaccination uh, that will give us some immunity, and uh, more rapid testing that would allow us to know our status uh, more easily on a given day. So, so I do feel hopeful. You know, we're here in a county. We have the best leadership you can imagine. It's a, sort of we speak with one voice, uh, and we move forward, you know, as carefully as we can during the pandemic, but always knowing that each of us has the opportunity here, not just the obligation, but the opportunity to be part of the solution. And we'll take the, second question, the next question. And the next question comes from... Margaret Carrero from KNX News. Please go ahead. Yes, thank you again. Thank you so much for the update and, and the ability to ask questions. Curious, Dr. Ferreira, you had mentioned um, about the younger population really being uh, the highest with regard to the new cases. Any indicators about kind of where or how this is spreading among the, among the younger population? Is there any way to trace it back to certain places, certain activities that they've been doing? It's such a good question, so thanks a lot. Um, and I don't have a, a, a definitive or exact answer. I can let you know with some anecdotal information about our investigations um, that one issue clearly are the social gatherings. So those remain a place for easy transmission. Uh, inside in particular, you know, those parties that people have decided, I'm, I'm tired, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, have my birthday party or celebrate my anniversary or celebrate my wedding and we're going to, in fact, do something that's going to have lots of people from different households gathering together. We're eating and we're drinking. We're not wearing masks. Uh, it makes it very easy for there to be transmission. And we have example after example after example. And there are a lot of younger people at these events. There are a lot of younger people that are holding their own events. Uh, the bars may be closed, but as you've seen, people have decided that doesn't mean uh, we can't get together, we can't... Uh, have music, we can't do our dancing, we can't be loud, we can't sing, we're going to figure that out. And I say, you're figuring it out on the backs of other people. Uh, you're transmitting this virus at those settings 
and then other people are getting sick because you're all going to work the next day or two days later or you're going to a store and you're now infected. You may be asymptomatic, but you're shedding virus and other people are getting infected. So those activities absolutely are leading to us having um, more infection than, than we would uh, among younger people and younger people infecting other people uh, who then go on perhaps to get sick uh, with serious illness. Um, I think the second activity where you can look on our website and you can see we're still struggling and we still need a lot more compliance is at some of our businesses. And again, uh, a lot of younger people are workers um, and, uh, and they do a lot of work and, and we thank them for that. They need protections. It's not just healthcare workers that are essential. Uh, there are so many others that are at their jobs every day uh, and we have to make sure when they're going to their jobs they get every single protection uh, so that again, they're not uh, getting infected and transmitting that infection to others. Uh, but one of the reasons why we see a, a large increase in young people is there's just a lot more gathering. And in that gathering, they're taking uh, infections into their houses and into workplaces, uh, and it's spreading. So I ask everyone, send your control. We really need to stop the gatherings and the parties right now. We need to get our youngest students back to school, and that means every single person has to help us slow the spread we need our rate to drop for positive cases to 200 or less cases per every 100,000 people. It's something we could do, but we're going to have to do it together. Thanks, and we'll take the next question. And our next question comes from Patrick Healy from NBC4. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, I'm curious, based on our latest update to the model, um, and I guess I need to ask a foundational question first. There's this number from the state, 200 cases per 100,000, that apparently is a threshold that we have to get below before we can have waivers for reopening the elementary schools. First of all, can you clarify what that number means? Is that the number of estimated new cases or current cases? And based on the model, when do we think we'll below that, be below that number so school districts can apply for waivers? Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. And I'm going to start with the first question because the second question is kind of the crystal ball question. But um, yes, yeah, so the way the, um, this case rate is, um, is actually computed for the state is it's a 14-day period of time that they look at the average cases. So it is really relatively new cases. It's not cumulative cases. You know, our rate would be well over 1,000 if it was cumulative. Uh, so this is the last 14 days, and it's the average. Um, and yes, you know, I, I give the example always of New York City, who now, uh, in spite of having uh, so much devastation from COVID-19, they have about 50 cases per 100,000 people. So yes, we can. We can get the rate down. Uh, I don't know when, um, but I do know it's possible. Uh, I would be hopeful uh, that, you know, we work really hard. Everybody does their part. And, you know, we, we come, you know, we get closer to October and, and the rate has really come down. But I don't have a crystal ball. I can just look at what's happened in other places uh, across the, our country and across the world and suggest that um, with a really concerted effort, that rate has come down and come down significantly. I think we can do that here. Uh, it looks like we have time for one more question. Oh, and, and um, yeah, I think I answered them both. Yeah. And our last question comes from Sandy Banks from the Los Angeles Times. Please go ahead. Hi, Mark. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. I hope. Um, 
my question has to do with the party. And you talked about education as the way to conquer this pandemic. What can we do differently to educate the young people about the dangers and the risks they're taking when they go to these parties? I would just, if I could, um, just take a little bit of that. Um, I can tell you that one thing that we're doing here at the county is really providing uh, public service announcements and really messaging that uh, this impacts the very young population and actually talking about those stories. In fact, I tell a story where I actually interviewed someone who was 33 years old and had uh, been contacted by the virus and she had been uh, at home now for about four months. And she didn't realize that how devastating this disease could be. She had no previous um, health, health concerns. She was an athlete, a marathon runner. And all of a sudden she goes out to run and one day she comes back and she feels weak. The next day she goes to the hospital, they tell her she got COVID. She had uh, blood clots, inflammation, um, and she's having numbness in her, in her nervous system. So a lot of things we're learning about this disease that are, that are very, very serious. And I would just say if people, young people, take a look at that and not just think about themselves, but think about the person across the way from them, the people that are in their home, their friends, their colleagues at work, all of that is really, really important. So the risk, as we say, uh, is real. And we want everyone to know that LA County is taking this very serious and we need to have everyone to partake in that. We can't do it alone. We need your help. We have to be united. Okay, now we're gonna transition to Spanish. Uh, buenas tardes, soy la Supervisora Hilda Solis, Vicepresidenta de la Junta de Supervisores del Condado de Los Angeles. Como condado, hemos seguido enfrentando disparidades ra raciales. Este lunes, junto con Total Testing Solutions, lanzamos un nuevo sitio de prueba en la ciudad de Huntington Park. Y ayer abrimos otro nuevo, un sitio de prueba de COVID-19 en la ciudad de Azusa. Y hoy mismo abrimos otro nuevo sitio de prueba en el consulado mexicano aquí en el parque de MacArthur Park y Pico Union. Estos sitios son recursos para la comunidad. Hemos visi visto muchos casos de COVID-19 en la tienda Food for Less, que se encuentra cerca del nuevo sitio de pruebas ahí en el parque de MacArthur Park. El UFCW local 67 ha pedido por medidas de seguridad en este Food for Less y en otras tiendas. Medidas de seguridad en los lugares de trabajo son muy necesarios, pero también los centros de pruebas tienen que estar en la comunidad para la comunidad. Y les quiero recordar que las pruebas de COVID-19 no son una carga pública. Para más información, pueden llamar 211. Además, para servir a las personas sin hogar, el condado invirtió 37 millones de dólares en el proyecto de desarrollo de viviendas de apoyo permanente de Dignes, un proyecto que, que va a definamente ayudar a las personas sin hogares. COVID-19 ha aumentado la urgencia de construir más casas y me complace decir que este proyecto tendrá unas 600 unidades de vivienda permanente para personas que se encuentran sin hogar o son vulnerables de parte del COVID-19. Además, seguimos tratando de evitar más personas si queden sin hogar. La mayoría de los renteros 
que no pueden pagar su renta son de Latinx y africanamericano. Por eso el condado asignó 100 millones de dólares para crear un programa para ayudar a renteros impactados por COVID-19 para que puedan apagar su renta. Este programa es para renteros de bajos recursos y la Autoridad de Desarrollo del Condado de Los Ángeles lo maneja. Este será uno de los grandes programas de alivio de renta en el Nación. El programa se lanzó se va a lanzar el 17 de agosto hasta la 31 de agosto. El objetivo es ayudar entre 8,000 o 9,000 hogares. Pueden mandar su aplicación desde el 17 de agosto hasta el 31 de agosto. Para más información, tienen que llamar a 211. Habrá ayuda a personas quienes hablan diferentes idiomas disponibles. Además, el condado tiene otro programa para ayudar a la gente de bajos recursos a pagar su renta. Con este programa, el condado paga la renta para los bajos recursos, paga la renta a los dueños de las propiedades. Este programa está abierto a los dueños de propiedades en las áreas no incorporadas, por ejemplo, en el este de Los Ángeles, en el Distrito 1. Pueden mandar su aplicación hasta el 31 de agosto. Este programa de asistencia emergencia para rentas ayuda a los grupos de nuestras comunidades que están sufriendo. Ayuda a renteros de bajos recursos quienes no tienen pagar su renta. Y también ayuda a los dueños de las propiedades. Para más información, solamente llama a 211. También vemos el impacto de este virus sobre los niños. En el Valle Central de California, un joven murió de COVID-19. En un encampamento de verano en Georgia, cientos de niños se infectaron de COVID-19 porque no tenían puestos sus topabocas. Y aquí en el condado de Los Ángeles seguimos viendo casos de inflamación en los niños. Esta es una condición relacionada con COVID-19 en lo que diferentes partes del cuerpo pueden inflamarse, incluyendo el corazón, pulmones y los ojos. Y es muy grave. Los centros para el control y la prevención de enfermedades encontrarán que los niños corren un mayor riesgo de tener síntomas severos de COVID-19. Los niños africanoamericanos y latinos son los más vulnerables de ir al hospital por parte de COVID-19. Los niños latinos tienen ocho veces más posibilidades de ir al hospital que los niños blancos y los niños africanoamericanos. Un análisis de 14 estados de más de 500 niños en el hospital por COVID-19 revaló que uno de cada tres fue admitido en cuidado intensivo. Esta es una tasa similar de los, de los adultos. Los niños son vulnerables de parte de COVID-19. Así que, por favor, siguen tomando este virus en serio. Y en conclusión, ahora me gustaría presentar a Jacqueline Valenzuela, que va a hablar con ustedes. Buenas tardes. Hoy quiero hablarles sobre algunas personas vulnerables que viven en el condado de Los Ángeles y que tienen mayor riesgo de enfermarse gravemente por COVID-19. La indigencia era una gran crisis que existía mucho antes que viéramos COVID-19. 
Y en los últimos años el condado, uh, junto con otros socios, incluyendo los gobiernos municipales, agencias, proveedores de servicios y organizaciones comunitarias, han construido una red y un sistema uh, para abordar esta crisis humanitaria. El Departamento de Salud Pública ha sido parte de este esfuerzo en diferentes maneras. Por ejemplo, nuestras enfermeras de salud pública han estado proveyendo vacunas y compartiendo información y recursos sobre cómo estas personas pueden mantenerse saludables. Además, publicamos una, investiga una investigación innovadora a principios del año pasado que mostró que la enfermedad cardíaca es una de las principales causas de mortalidad para las personas que viven sin hogar. Sabemos que este tipo de condición delicada de salud eh, puede causar complicaciones graves en quienes uh, está, están infectados por COVID-19 y hasta puede ser mortal. Todos los días le informamos que más del 90% de las personas que fallecieron por causas de COVID-19 en el condado de Los Ángeles tenían condiciones delicadas de salud. Eh, como alta presión, enfermedades de cor del corazón y la diabetes. También estamos conscientes que estos pacientes son exactamente los que necesitan cuidado médico intensivo si se infectan con COVID-19 y necesitan ser hospitalizadas. Al mismo tiempo, al inicio de esta pandemia, el condado de Los Ángeles y sus socios tomaron medidas para proteger a nuestros vecinos más vulnerables y a toda nuestra comunidad. Necesitábamos prevenir un aumento repentino en nuestro sistema médico y frenar la propagación de este virus mortal. Trabajamos juntos para educar y establecer medidas de control de infecciones en albergues uh, para prevenir la propagación de este virus. Por otra parte, establecemos eh, de manera proactiva un programa de cuarentena y aislamiento para contener uh, la propagación de, de este virus. El condado también sigue participando en el programa estatal conocido como Project Room Key para albergar temporalmente a las personas más vulnerables que tienen ciertos problemas delicados de salud o que por lo general son personas mayores uh, con el propósito de evitar su exposición a COVID-19. Eso también ayuda a proteger la capacidad de nuestro sistema médico. Estos pasos proactivos fueron muy importantes para prevenir una situación catastrófica en nuestros refugios y en nuestras comunidades. Continuamos trabajando fuertemente en este proceso. Al mismo tiempo, queremos dejar en claro que nuestros esfuerzos protegen a las personas que no tienen refugio. Sin embargo, estos esfuerzos también protegen a toda nuestra comunidad. Necesitamos contener la propagación de este virus para todos y al mismo tiempo proteger la capacidad de nuestros hospitales. Y todos debemos continuar en nuestro viaje hacia la recuperación. El Estado ha dejado muy claro que nuestro camino hacia una reapertura exitosa significa que tenemos que proteger a nuestros residentes más vulnerables, razón por la cual nuestros esfuerzos diarios son tan críticos. En solo un momento compartiremos información sobre la línea de tendencia acerca de cómo COVID-19 ha afectado a las personas sin hogar en el condado de Los Ángeles. También les pon los pondremos al día sobre un grupo de trabajadores esenciales, los profesionales de salud. 
Y antes de pre presentar esos datos, queremos actualizarlos sobre la reapertura de colegios y universidades. Los colegios y universidades son un importante motor de innovación, vitalidad cultural y actividad económica en el condado. Al mismo tiempo, la forma en que operan los colegios y universidades uh, crea un riesgo significativo de brotes de COVID-19 entre estudiantes, profesionales, eh, pro, perdón, prof, profesores y personal. Y estos riesgos se extienden más allá del sitio escolar hacia la comunidad en general. Por esta razón, hemos decidido, de acuerdo con la guía del Estado, a limitar la reapertura de colegios y universidades hasta que podamos frenar la propagación uh, de infección en el condado. Esto significa que los colegios y universidades pueden continuar con sus operaciones esenciales, pero que toda la instrucción académica uh, debe continuar realizándose a distancia. Los colegios y universidades deben limitar la residencia de estudiantes en el sitio escolar, pero pueden continuar proporcionando alojamiento para estudiantes que no tienen otra opción. Las instituciones pueden continuar ofreciendo capacitación e instrucción en personas solo para los estudiantes que son o que se convertirán en parte de la fuerza laboral esencial y solo para las actividades requeridas que no se pueden lograr a través del aprendizaje virtual. El resto de la instrucción académica debe seguir realizándose a distancia. La facultad y otro personal pueden venir al sitio escolar con el propósito de brindar educación a distancia y otras actividades relacionadas con los propósitos anteriores, así como para mantener operaciones básicas. Sabemos que esta es una noticia desalentadora uh, para todo el estudiante que esperaba con ansias regresar a las instalaciones universitarias. Pero este retraso significa que continuaremos frenando la propagación de COVID-19 y llegaremos al punto en cual podamos regresar a las instalaciones de manera segura. Ahora nos gustaría compartir nuestros datos diarios con algunas pautas adicionales por edad. Sentimos informar 58 fallecimientos adicionales uh, este día. Esto eleva el número total de fallecimientos a 5,109 en el condado de Los Ángeles. El 92% de las personas que han fallecido por COVID-19 tenían problemas delicados de salud. De las 4,801 personas uh, que fallecieron por COVID-19, donde se identificó su raza de etnicidad, el 50% son latinos, el 24% son blancos, el 15% son asiáticos, el 10% son afroamericanos, menos de un por ciento son nativos de Hawái o de las islas del Pacífico, y un por ciento son de otra raza de etnicidad. Hoy también reportamos 2,428 casos nuevos. Esto eleva el número total de casos en el condado de Los Ángeles a 214,197. Estamos reportando 1,178 casos confirmados entre personas que viven sin hogar. Entre estos casos, 390 fueron remitidos a sitios de aislamiento y cuarentena 
para uh, ser aislados adecuada, adecuadamente durante su enfermedad. 1,538 casos confirmados están hospitalizados actualmente. El 32% de estas personas son casos confirmados en unidades de cuidados uh, intensivos. Uh, 1,984 casos confirmados y sospechosos están actualmente hospitalizados y el 19% están en ventiladores. Hemos investigado un total de 1,428 entornos de congregación residencial y no residenciales con al menos un caso confirmado de COVID-19. El total de casos confirmados en entornos institucionales es de 29,295, incluidos tanto el personal como los residentes. 15,390 de estos casos uh, son residentes y 13,905 son empleados. Nos da tristeza informar que 2,346 residentes en entornos institucionales han fallecido por COVID-19. 2,121 de las personas que fallecieron residían en centros de enfermería especializada. Estamos reportando 3,485 casos confirmados en algún momento en las instalaciones de la cárcel. 3,099 entre personas encarceladas y 386 empleados. La oficina del Aguacil informa sobre sus instalaciones que 26 personas encarceladas han dado positivo, 53 personas se han recuperado y 1,589 están en cuarentena. Hay 197 casos en la prisión estatal y 757 casos en las prisiones federales y 126 casos en las instalaciones juveniles. 1,984,394 personas han sido evaluadas y sus resultados han sido eh, reportados al condado de Los Ángeles. El 10% fueron positivas. Ahora nos gustaría ofrecer un contexto a estos a datos diarios y ver más de cerca estas tendencias que estamos viendo por edad. Este gráfico muestra la tasa promedia de casos diarios por cada 100,000 personas por categoría de edad. Pueden observar que a partir de mediados de junio, los casos aumentan considerablemente entre los adultos más jóvenes, representados por las líneas azules y amarillas en este gráfico. Ambas líneas alcanzaron su punto máximo a mediados de julio y ahora son considerablemente más bajas que a mediados de, de julio. La línea amarilla, la cual representa a los adultos jóvenes entre 18 a 29 años, tiene la tasa de casos más alta entre, entre todos los grupos de edad en el condado de Los Ángeles. La línea azul, justo debajo de la línea amarilla, representa a las personas de 30 a 49 años. Este crecimiento de casos muestra que estos dos grupos de edad eh, están provocando las infecciones en el condado en este momento y constituyen la mayor parte, alrededor del 60% uh, de nuestros casos nuevos. 
Le siguen los adultos de 50 a 64 años, representados por la línea verde, que tiene una trayectoria similar eh, en el mismo periodo. Aunque menos pronunciada, lo que indica un aumento más gradual de casos en este grupo de adultos. Next slide. Este gráfico analiza las hospitalizaciones eh, por grupo de edad para el periodo de marzo a finales de julio. Aquí podemos observar que los adultos entre las edades de 30 y 65 años constituyen la mayoría de los casos de hospitalización y las personas en estos grupos de edad representan aproximadamente una cuarta parte de todos los casos de hospitalización. En el medio del gráfico pueden observar que la línea café donde las hospitalizaciones han disminuido uh, para las personas de 80 años y más y que las personas de 18 a 29 años, la línea María, representan aproximadamente el 9% de todos los casos hospitalizados. En la parte inferior de este gráfico se encuentran las líneas de tendencia para los niños de 0 a 4 años y de 5 a 11 años, que representan un porcentaje muy pequeño de hospitalizaciones. Next slide, please. Como pueden ver en este gráfico, um, desde mayo los fallecimientos tienen una tendencia baja y to todas las categorías de edad están experimentando una disminución en fallecimientos. La línea anaranjada muestra que los fallecimientos entre los mayores de 80 años han disminuido, uh, lo que muestra que las intervenciones que se han implementado en las instalaciones de enfermería especializada han dado um, efectos, uh, han, dado, han sido efectivos. Ahora también nos gustaría pasar a la información sobre lo que han enfrentado las personas sin hogar y quienes trabajan con ellas desde el inicio de esta pandemia. Han habido 1,278 casos de COVID-19 entre personas sin hogar. 139 casos entre el personal en albergues. Han habido 31 fallecimientos entre personas sin hogar y dos fallecimientos entre el personal. Hemos realizado 161 Uh, investigaciones de brotes en albergues, campamentos para personas sin hogar, uh, proveedores de servicios para personas sin hogar y centros de higiene. Ahora queremos proveer uh, información sobre algunas tendencias que estamos observando. Hemos estado rastreando información sobre casos y brotes entre personas sin hogar desde marzo. Esta diapositiva es una representación de semana a semana de nuestros casos entre personas en refugios, personas sin hogar y que viven en otros entornos. Pueden observar que durante los últimos meses uh, ha habido un número bastante constante de casos en todos los entornos, aunque ha habido algunos altibajos, especialmente en los uh, albergues donde vimos brotes desde el principio. Si bien estos datos continúan mostrando que las personas sin hogar están en riesgo de exposición en todos los entornos, así que todos nosotros, los uh, empleados del condado, los socios de las ciudades, uh, las agencias, los proveedores de servicios y las organizaciones comunitarias se han movido en col colaboración para prevenir y uh, contener la propagación de COVID-19 en esta población vulnerable.
Next slide. Iniciamos una investigación de brotes en estos entornos tan pronto se confirma un caso. Hacemos esto para entrar temprano, contener el virus y prevenir la propagación entre las otras personas que viven ahí. Puede observar que nos hemos mantenido estables durante los últimos meses con un aumento de albergues en las últimas semanas de julio. Esto es consistente con nuestro aumento de casos en general durante este periodo de tiempo. Otra población vulnerable clave que vigilamos son las que viven y trabajan en centros de enfermería especializada y otros centros de atención a largo plazo. Como parte de nuestros esfuerzos para adelantarnos a posibles brotes y identificar las instalaciones que necesitan más apoyo, encuestamos periódicamente a las instalaciones de enfermería especializada sobre su cumplimiento con las pruebas COVID de COVID-19 obligatorias. A principios de este mes, 340 centros de enfermería especializada, todos los centros del condado, respondieron a nuestra encuesta. Un total de 14,100 residentes de hogares de ancianos fueron evaluados y 392, o sea, 2.8%, dieron positivo. Un total de 22,166 empleados fueron evaluados y solo el 1.7% dieron positivo. Estas tasas son considerablemente más bajas que las tasas de casos a principios de mayo y junio. Y las tasas bajas continuas de positividad son una buena señal. Nos muestran que nuestros esfuerzos están funcionando y que los hogares de ancianos están haciendo lo que deben hacer para, para frenar la propagación y proteger a, nuestros, a nuestras personas mayores. Hemos trabajado para mejorar el, el acceso a equipos de protección personal uh, esenciales en los hogares de ancianos para que los trabajadores tengan lo que necesiten para mantenerse seguros. También hemos tomado medidas para asegurarnos uh, de que todos estén capacitados para ponerse y quitarse el equipo de protección personal. Hemos realizado numerosas visitas a los centros de enfermería especializada para brindar orientación sobre estrategias efectivas de control de infecciones, así como innumerables visitas de seguimiento para garantizar el cumplimiento de estas prácticas. Y hemos trabajado para apoyar a los centros de enfermería especializada en sus esfuerzos, en sus esfuerzos para realizar pruebas periódicas de su personal y residentes para asegurarnos de que podamos adelantarnos a posibles brotes. Y después de ver demasiados fallecimientos a principios de este año, podemos observar que estos esfuerzos uh, en compañerismo eh, que tenemos con los centros de enfermería especializada han dado grandes mejore, mejoras en los resultados, como verá en el siguiente gráfico. Como recordatorio, tenemos una cantidad increíble de datos sobre centros de enfermería especializada en nuestro sitio web. Next slide, please. Como puede ver con la línea verde, el promedio de fallecimientos totales diarios aumentó ligeramente hacia fines de julio y ahora ha comenzado a disminuir nuevamente. 
Sin embargo, durante el mismo periodo de tiempo, hemos visto una disminución gradual, pero constante en el promedio de fallecimientos diarios entre las personas que residen en centros de enfermería especializada, uh, que es la línea azul. Esta es una buena noticia y esto significa que las medidas que implementamos eh, funcionaron. Debemos continuar garantizando el cumplimiento de estas medidas para evitar que se repita la trágica situación que vimos al inicio de la pandemia. Next slide. Como saben, también estamos atentos a las desigualdades raciales y de etnicidad relacionadas con este virus. Esta, uh, este gráfico muestra los fallecimientos entre los residentes de un centro de enfermería, de centros de enfermería especializada y los trabajadores del centro de enfermería especializada por raza y etnicidad. Entre los residentes, puede ver que los residentes latinos y blancos uh, representan cada uno alrededor del 30% de las muertes um, en estos centros. Le siguen los residentes asiáticos con un 21% y los residentes afroamericanos con un 14%. En comparación entre los profesionales de salud en centros de enfermería especializada, la gran mayoría, 57%, son latinos y otro 37% son asiáticos. Los trabajadores de salud blancos y afroamericanos representan solo el 3% de los fallecimientos lo que también nos lleva a nuestro uh, siguiente gráfico. Next slide, please. Este gráfico muestra entornos uh, ocupacionales donde se ha informado el mayor número de casos. Los trabajadores de salud que están empleados en centros de enfermería especializada y centros de atención a largo plazo continúan representando la mayor proporción de casos con un 34%. Next slide. Tuvimos un total de 79 muertes relacionadas con COVID-19 entre los trabajadores de salud en el condado de Los Ángeles. Como informamos antes, las enfermeras, incluidas las enfermeras profesionales con licencia y las enfermeras prácticas, continúan representando la mayoría de los fallecimientos entre los trabajadores de salud, 44% seguido por los cuidadores con 10%. Next slide. Este gráfico muestra los entornos de trabajo con el mayor número de muertes representadas por los trabajadores de salud. Puede ver que los trabajadores de salud en los centros de enfermería especializada y los centros de atención a largo plazo siguen representando la mayoría de estas trágicas muertes en un 62%. Next slide. Hemos seguido la ciencia desde el inicio de esta pandemia y hemos llegado a saber que el equipo de protección personal, ya sea máscaras, guantes y protectores faciales, um, ayuda a prevenir la propagación de COVID-19. Con ese fin, el Departamento de Salud Pública se asegura de que las organizaciones e instituciones uh, que atienden a nuestros más vulnerables tengan el equipo de protección personal necesario para mantener seguros al personal y a los pacientes. Hemos distribuido un total de 24 millones de equipos de protección personal para ayudar a las organizaciones, incluidas las instalaciones de atención a largo plazo, los centros de atención residenciales para adultos, las instalaciones de vida asistida y los refugios para personas sin hogar.
Del 10 de julio al 10 de agosto hemos distribuido 11 millones de piezas de equipo de protección personal, principalmente respiradoras, batas y guantes uh, y mascarillas que, son, que fueron suministradas por el Estado. Next slide. Esta diapositiva nos muestra que estamos muy por encima del objetivo exigido por el Estado de que al menos el 60% de los hospitales tengan un suministro de uh, equipo de protección personal para más de 15 días. Esto combinado con la disponibilidad actual uh, de este equipo del condado nos da la confianza de que seguiremos teniendo los suministros que necesitamos para mantener seguros a los trabajadores de la salud en el lugar de trabajo. Y es importante prestar mucha atención a cómo les está yendo a nuestros más vulnerables y a quienes los cuidan. Esta población es un indicador claro de ¿Cuál será nuestro éxito como comunidad? Para superar esta pandemia debemos trabajar juntos. Como individuos debemos seguir cubriéndonos la cara, evitar las multitudes y reunirnos y no reunirnos con personas con las que no vivimos. Debemos quedarnos en casa tanto como sea posible y continuar lavándonos las manos. Okay, so now we'll go ahead and move on to remarks in Armenian. Բարիոր բոլորին, շնորակալ եմ վերահսկիչ սոլիսին եւ վերահսկիչ մարմինների ողջ խորհրդին։ Այսօր ես ուզում եմ խոսել ավելի խոցելի մարդկանց մասին, որոնք ապրում են Լոս Անջելոս կոմսությունում եւ ավելի մեծ ռիսկի են ենթարկվում COVID-19-ի լուրջ հիվանդությունների պատճառով։ Շատ մարդիկ, ովքեր Լոս Անջելոսի շրջանում անօթևան են, առանձնապես խոցելի են քանի որ նրանց համար գրեթե անհնարին խնդիր է իրականացնել կանխարգելակման բազմաթիվ ճանկեր։ Անօթևանությունը COVID-19-ից շատ առաջ ճգնաժամ էր։ Եվ ըստ էության, անօթևան ապրող մարդիկ շատ ավելի մեծ ռիսկի են ենթարկվում առողջության արդյունքների համար։ Վերջին մի քանի տարիների ընթացքում վարչաշրջանը բազմաթիվ գործընկերների հետ միասին ներառյալ քաղաքային կառավարությունների, գործընկերությունների, ծառայությունների մատուցողների եւ համայնքային կազմակերպությունների հետ ստեղծել են ցանց եւ համակարգ այս հումանիտար ճգնաժամի լուծման համար։ Հասարակության առողջության վարչությունը այս ճանկերի մի մասն է եղել տարբեր ձևերով ներառյալ առաջնագծերում օրինակ մեր հանրային առողջապահության բուժքույրները առաջարկել են անօթևան կյանքով ապրող մարդկանց պատվաստումներ անել եւ տեղեկատվություններ եւ ռեսուրսներ տրամադրել այն մասին թե ինչպես առողջ մնալ անցալ տարի մենք տեսանք ավելի վաղ հետազոտություն որը ցույց տվեց որ իթիվս այլ բաների սրտի հիվանդությունը անօթևան ապրող մարդկանց մահվան առաջատար պատճառներից մեկն է։ Սրանք հիմքում ընկած պայմանների այն տեսակներն են, որոնք մենք գիտենք, որ կարող են լուրջ բարդություններ առաջացնել նրանց համար, ովքեր վարակված են COVID-19-ով, եւ դրանք կարող են նաեւ մահացու լինել։ Ամենօր մենք հայտնում ենք ձեզ, որ Լոս Անջելոս շրջանում COVID-19-ով մահացած մարդկանց ավելի քան 90%-ը ուներ առողջական խնդիրներ։ Ինչպիսիք են հիպերտոնիան, սրտ անոթային հիվանդությունները եւ շաքարախտը։ Մենք գիտենք նաեւ, որ այս մարդիկ կարիք ունեն 
ինտենսիվ բժշկական օգնության, եթե նրանք վարակվեն COVID-19։ Եվ գուծ է անռաժեշ լինի հոսպիտալացումը։ Այս համաճարակի սկսվելուց է վերջ ճանքեր են գործադրվել, որպիսի վարճաշրջանի և մեր գործ ընկերների միջոցներ զերնարկեն պաշպանելու մեր առավել խոցելի հարևաններին մեր ամբողջ համայքում։ Մենք աշխատել են կրթել և հիմնել ապաստաններում վարակի դեմ պայքարի միջոցառումներ։ Այս վիրուսի տարածումը կանխելու համար։ Մենք նաև ակտիվորեն նախաձերնել ենք կարանտինի և մեկուսացման ծրագրեր։ Վարճաշրջանը նաև շարնակում է մնալ ծրագրային սենյակ, համապետական ծրագրի մասնակից ժամանակավորապես տեղավորելու առավել խոցելի մարդկանց, ովքեր ապաստաններում և մեր փողոցներում աղետալի իրավիճակը կանխելու համար։ Մենք շարունակում են կրտնաջան աշխատել այդ ամենի համար։ Շատ պարզ է, որ հաջող վերաբացման մեր ճանապարը նշանակում է, որ մենք պետք է պաշպա� Ես ձեզ կթարմասնեմ նաև այն ինչ մենք տեսնում ենք հիմա հմուտ բուշկուրական հաստատություններում, սա խոցելի մարդկանց եվս մեկ խումբ է, որ մենք պետք է պաշպանենք։ Մեր ամենա առաջնային աշխատողները Ուզում եմ խոսել համալսանի և կոլեջների վերաբացման մասին, թարմացնել ներկայասնելով վերաբացման մեր մոտեցումը։ Կոլեջներն ու համալսաները վարջության շրջանում, նուրարայության, մշակույթի, կենսունակության պրնոգումները զգալի ռիսկի ուսանողների, պակուլտետների և աշխատողների շրջանում։ Եվ այս ռիսկերը տարացվում են համասարանական տարացքի լայն համայնքի մեջ։ Այսիսկ պատճարով մենք որոշում ենք Սա նշանակում է, որ կոլեջներն ու համասաները կարող են շարնակել իրենց հիմնական գործներողությունը, բայց ուսումնական հրանգների մեծ մասը պետք է շարնակվեն իրականացնել հրավոր ուսուցման միջոցով։ Հիմնարկները Եվ միայն անռաժեշտ գործողությունների համար, որոնք հնարավոր չէ իրականացնել վիրտուալ ուսուցման միջոցով։ Բոլոր մյուս ուսումնական հրահանգները պետք է շարունակվեն իրականացվել հերավոր ուսումնական միջոցով։ Քոլեջներն ու համասաները պետք է սահմանապակեն իրենց ուսանողական 
կացայությունը մեն այն բնակարաններում ապահովելով ուսանողների համար ովքեր չունեն բնակարանային այլ տարբերակներ վերջապես քոլեջներն ու համասանները կարող են թույլ տալ որ կոլեգիալ սպորտը շարունակվի բայց միայն թե դրանք համապատասխանեն կոլեգիալ ատլետիկայի պետության միջանկյալ ցուցումներին գիտեմ որ սա հուսահատող նորություն է եւ ուսանողների համար ովքեր անհամբերությամբ են սпасում համասաններին բայց այս հետաձգումը նշանակում է որ մենք կշարունակենք դանդաղեցնել կովիդ 19-ի տարածումը եւ հասնել այն կետին եւ մենք կարող ենք վերադառնալ համալսարան եւ համայքը փոխանցման տեմպերը ցածր լինի ներկա իրավիճակի վերաբերյալ տեղեկությունները հետևյալն են այսօր ցավով հայտնում ենք եւս 58 մահվան մասին այս մարդկանցից 19-ը 80 տարեկանից բարձր են որոնցից 16-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ 24-ը 65 տարեկանից 79-ն են որոնցից 17-ը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ 11 անձի տարիքը 50-ից 64-ն է երեքը ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ երեքը 30 տարեկանից 49-ն են որոնցից երեքն էլ ունեցել են ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ սա բերում է ընդհանուր մահերի թիվը 5109 լոս անջելոս շրջանում էթնիկ պատկանելությունը հետևյալն է 50% լատինեքս 24% սպիտակ 15% ասիական 10% աֆրոամերիկացիներ 1% բնիկ հավայան 1% այլ ռասա եւ էթնիկ խումբ Կովիդ 19-ով մահացած անձանց 92%-ը ունեն ուղեկցող առողջական խնդիրներ ինչը կարևորում է այն անձանց ովքեր առողջության լուրջ խնդիրներ ունեն մնալ տանը եւ խուսափել սրտ կապերից Այսօր մենք հայտնում ենք 2428 դեպքերի մասին եւ սա բերում է Լոս Անջելոս շրջանի դրական դեպքերի ընդհանուր թիվը 214197-ի Այս դեպքերը ներառում են Լոնգ Բիչ քաղաքում մեր գործընկերների կողմից գրանցված 9210 դեպքեր, իսկ Փասադենա քաղաքի կողմից գրանցված 2133 դեպքեր, որոնք ունեն անկախ առողջապահական բաժանմունքներ։ Մենք հայտնում ենք 1278 հաստատված դեպքեր անոթևան ապրող մարդկանց շրջանում։ Ապաստան գտած 390 անց պատճաճ կերպով մեկուսացված են, իսկ սերտ կապերը կարանտինացված են։ Ներկայումս հոսպիտալացվել են 1538 մարդ, որոնցից 32%-ը գտնվում են ինտենսիվ խնամքի բաժանմունքում, իսկ 19%-ը միացված են շնչարական օդափոխիչների։ Դրանց թվում են ծերանոցներ, ապաստաններ, բուժման կենտրոններ, ուժանդակվող բնակելի հաստատություններ եւ քրեակ ատարողական հիմնարկներ։ Ցավով ենք հայտնում, որ 2346 մարդ, ովքեր ապրում էին ինստիտուցիոնալ պայմաններում, մահացել են COVID-19-ից։ Ինստիտուցիոնալ միջավայրում բնակվող մահացածների 49%-ը բնակվում էին հմուտ բուժքույրական հաստատություններում։ 
Institutional Michavarum Hastatvats and Hanur Tepkere, Xan in Hazar, Yerkuhar in a Sun Hingnen, Neradal and Nakazma Yev Benakichnere. Ice Depkerits, Tasne Hinkhazar, Yerekar in a Sun Benakichnernen, Yev Tasirek Hazar in Nahar Hinga and Nakazm. Meng Zekutsumek were Hastatvats, Yerekhazar, Chorsar Utsun Hing Tepker, Arsana Gervelen, Kerya Katarogakan, Himnark Nerum. Երեք հազար ինը դատապարտյալ եւ 386 անձնակազ։ 197 դեպք նահանգային բանտերում, 137 բանտարկյալ եւ 60 աշխատակազ։ 757 դեպք ֆեդերալ բանտերում, 741 բանտարկյալ եւ 16 աշխատակազ։ 126 դեպք անչափահասների հաստատություններում, 50 բանտարկյալ եւ 76 աշխատակազ։ Եվ Los Angeles շրջանի արցանագրված բոլոր նոր դեպքերի զեկույցը կարող եք տեսնել առողջապահության վարչության կայքում publichealth.lacounty.gov Ավելի քան 1,984,394 մարդ տեսավորվել են եւ արդյունքները զեկուցվել են Los Angeles շրջան, որոնցից 10%-ը դրական են։ Շնորհակալ եմ ձեզ այս կարևոր հարցերի եւ ուշադրության համար։ Մենք շարունակում ենք հետեւել թե ինչպես է մեր շրջանը, որպես առողջություն հերոպահում այս համաճարակը։ Բայց կարևոր է նաեւ ուշադրություն դարձնել թե ինչպես է մեր ամենախոցելի մարտիկ եւ նրանք ովքեր հոգ են տանում։ Համոզված լինելը որ մեր առավել խոցելի եւ ամենաուժեղ համայնքները ունեն հասանելության աղբյուրներ փոխանցումը հիվանդությունը եւ մահը նվազեցնելու համար մնում է գերագույն առաջնահերթությունը եւ սա պահանջվում է որ բոլորս միասին աշխատենք որպես անհատներ մենք պետք է շարունակենք հակնել դեմքի ծածկոցներ խուսափել բազմությունից խուսափել հավաքույտներից այն մարդկանց հետ որոնց հետ չենք ապրում մենք պետք է հնարավորինս տանը մնանք եւ շարունակենք լվանալ մեր ձեռքերը Մենք ձեռնարկում ենք այս գործողությունները մեր համար, մեր ընտանիքների համար եւ ամենախոցելի մարդկանց համար։ Շնորհակալություն։ Thank you. Now the remarks in Korean. 안녕하십니까? 오늘은 LA 카운티에 살고 있는 취약층과 코로나 19로 인해 심각한 병에 걸릴 확률이 높은 계층에 대해 이야기하고자 합니다. LA 카운티에서는 노숙자들을 특히 취약한데 왜냐하면 많은 예방 노력을 따르기가 불가능하기 때문입니다. 노숙자들은 코로나19 이전에도 문제였는데 어, 노숙자들의 건강이 나빠질 위험이 훨씬 크기 때문입니다. 보건당국은 앞장서서 노숙자 문제를 해결하기 위해서 노력했었는데 예를 들면 보건 간호사들은 노숙자들에게 생명을 구하는 예방접종을 제공하기 위해 노력했고 건강하게 살기 위해 여러 가지 리소스와 연결해주는 역할을 해왔습니다. 노숙자들 중에 주 사망 원인이 심장질환이라는 연구 결과가 있었는데 이 기저질환은 코로나19에 감염되었을 때 심각한 합병증을 일으킬 수 있습니다. 매일 우리는 LA 카운티에서 코로나19로 사망한 사람들 중에 90%가 고혈압이나 심장질환, 당뇨병과 같은 기저질환이 있었음을 알고 있습니다. 
이들은 또한 COVID-19에 감염이 되면 입원을 해야 하고 중환자실에서의 간호가 필요하게 될지도 모릅니다. 그러므로 카운티와 파트너들은 가장 취약한 이웃인 고 커뮤니티 전체를 보호하기 위해서 행동을 해왔습니다. 우리는 쉘터에서 바이러스의 확산을 막기 위한 감염 관리 조치를 취하도록 교육해왔습니다. 카운티는 또한 주정부 차원에서의 프로젝트인 룸키 프로그램에 참여하여 단기적으로 취약한 사람들이 코로나19에 노출되지 않도록 거주 장소를 마련해주고 있습니다. 전문대와 대학교 관련된 사항을 알려드리겠습니다. 주정부 지침과 일치하게 카운티에서의 감염 확산을 늦출 때까지 전문대학교와 종합대학에서의 영업을 재개하는 것을 제한하기로 결정하였습니다. 다시 말하면 대학교에서 필수 업무를 수행할 수는 있지만 교육 수업은 대부분 원격 수업을 해야 한다는 뜻입니다. 교육기관은 원격 수업을 할수 없는 활동들과 필수 노동 인구가 될 학생들을 교육하기 위해서 직접 트레이닝해야 하는 것을 제외하고는 모든 다른 교육 지침을 원격으로 해야 합니다. 교수들과 다른 직원들은 원격 교육을 제공하기 위해서 학교 캠퍼스에 올수 있고 위에 언급된 활동들을 위해서의 최소 기본 영업을 위해 학교에 올수 있습니다. 대학교 학교 내에 거주하는 학생의 수를 제한해야 하고 다른 거주 방법이 없는 학생들을 위해서만 마련할 수 있습니다. 마지막으로 주정부의 대학교 운동선수들을 위한 지침에 따른다면 대학 스포츠를 추진할 수 있습니다. 이제 데일리 리포트를 말씀드리겠습니다. 유감스럽게도 코로나 바이러스로 인해 추가로 58명의 사망자가 보고되었음을 알립니다. 이중 80세 이상의 19명은 19명이 있었고 그중 16명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 이중 24명은 65세에서 79세 사이였고 이 중에 17명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 이 중에 11명은 50에서 64세 사이였고 이 중에 9명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 이 중에 3명은 30세에서 49세 사이였고 이 중에 3명은 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 롱비치에서는 1명의 사망자가 있었고 자세한 점은 롱비치 .gov 웹사이트에서 보실 수 있습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 사망자 수는 5,109명입니다. 코로나 바이러스로 인해 사망한 분들 중에 92%가 이미 질환을 가지고 있었습니다. 오늘로써 2,428건의 새로운 확진 케이스가 보고되었습니다. 이로써 로스앤젤레스 카운티에서의 총 확진 케이스 수는 21만 4,197건입니다. 이 수는 롱비치시에서 9,210건, 파사디나시에서 2,133건이 있었으며 이두 시는 각 보건구가 따로 있음을 알려드립니다. 노숙자들 중에 확진 케이스 수는 1,278건입니다. 이들 중 390명은 보호소에서 고립되어 있고 밀접 접촉자는 격리되었습니다. 현재 1,538명이 양성 확진자로 병원에 입원해 있으며 이중 32%는 중환자실에 있습니다. 1,984명이 확진 또는 의심자로 병원에 입원해 있으며 19%는 인공호흡기에 의존해 있습니다. 하나 이상의 확진 케이스가 나온 총 1,428개의 거주시설과 비거주시설을 조사하였으며 이중 902개는 현재 조사 중이고 526개는 조사를 마쳤습니다. 
거주시설에는 양로원 전문 간호시설, 보호소, 치료소, 서포트 리빙 교도소가 있고 비거주시설에는 직장, 음식점, 상점, 교육기관들이 포함됩니다. 시설에서의 총 확진 케이스는 2만 9,295건이고 이중 1만 5,390건은 거주자이며 1만 3,905명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 시설에 사는 사망, 사람들 중에 사망자 수는 2,346명이고 이중 2,121명이 간호, 전문 간호시설에 살고 있었습니다. 오늘 새로 발표된 57명의 사망자 중에 8명, 즉 14%는 전문 간호시설과 관련된 케이스입니다. 교도시설에는 총 3,485건의 확진 케이스가 있었고 이중 3,099명은 수감자이며 386명은 일하는 사람들입니다. 지금까지 LA보건부로는 198만 4,394건 이상의 코로나 바이스 테스트를 받은 것으로 보고되었고 이중 10%가 양성 결과였습니다. 인종과 민족성이 알려진 4,801명의 사망자 중에 50%는 라틴 계열, 24%는 백인, 15%는 동양인, 10%는 흑인, 1% 미만은 하와이 태평양성 원주민, 그리고 나머지 1%는 기타 인종입니다. 이제 팬데믹 시작 이후로 노숙자들과 그들과 관련된 일하는 사람들에 관해서 이야기를 할 것입니다. 지금까지 노숙자들 가운데 1,278명이 코비드19 확진자였으며 139명은 쉘터 직원들이었습니다. 노숙자들 가운데 사망자 수는 31명이었고 쉘터 직원들 가운데는 2명이 있었습니다. 161개의 노숙자 쉘터, 노숙자 야영지, 서비스 제공자, 위생센터에서 일어난 발병들을 조사하였습니다. 파트너인 DHS에서는 확산을 멈추기 위해서 사람들을 격리하고 고립시키기 위해 긴급하게 움직이고 테스팅 프로그램을 실행하기 위해서 노력하고 있습니다. 또한 서비스 제공자, 쉘터, 또 다른 에이전시에서 감염 통제 지침을 따르도록 교육을 마련하였고 직원들과 고객들을 보호하기 위해 필요한 도구들을 준비하도록 하였습니다. 또 다른 취약 대상은 전문 간호시설과 장기 간호시설에 살거나 일하는 사람들입니다. 이달 초에 340개의 전문 간호시설에서 조사를 하였는데 이것은 카운티의 모든 시설들을 가리킵니다. 14,100명의 널싱홈 거주민들을 테스트하였고 그중 392명, 즉 2.8%가 양성이었습니다. 총 2만 2,166명의 직원들을 테스트하였으며 오직 1.7%만 양성 결과였습니다. 이 수치는 5월과 6월에 비해서는 매우 낮은 수치입니다. 우리는 널싱홈의 필수적인 개인 보호 장비를 마련하고 직원들이 안전하게 있을 수 있도록 필요한 것들을 마련하기 위해서 노력하였습니다. 또한 보호 장비를 올바로 착용하고 벗는 방법을 훈련시켰습니다. 또한 전문 간호시설에 일하는 직원과 거주민들을 정기적으로 테스트함으로써 일어날 수 있는 발병들을 막도록 노력하였습니다. 사망한 전문 간호시설의 거주민들과 직원들의 민족성 또 인종들을 비교해보면 라틴 계열과 백인 거주민들이 각 30%였고 흥양인이 21%, 흑인이 14%였습니다. 사망한 전문 간호시설의 의료 서비스 종사자들은 대부분 57%가 라틴 계열, 37%가 동양인, 흑인과 백인 의료 서비스 종사자가 각 3%였습니다. 
또 다른 가장 취약한 계층은 의료서비스 종사자들인데 이들은 생명을 구하는 일을 하고 있기 때문에 이들을 보호하기 위해서 최선을 다해야 합니다. 전문 간호시설과 장기 간호시설에 일하고 있는 의료서비스 종사자들이 34%로 가장 많은 코비드19 확진 케이스였습니다. LA 카운티에서 총 79명의 의료서비스 종사자가 코로나19와 관련하여 사망하였습니다. 이들 중에는 간호사들, 특히 LBN과 클리닉 간호사들이 의료서비스 종사장 등 가장 높은 44%의 사망률이었고 그 다음은 10%로 케어리버 도우미들이 있었습니다. 팬데믹 시작 이해로 과학적으로 PPE, 즉 개인 보호 장비가 코로나19의 확산을 방지하는 데 얼마나 큰 역할을 하는지 알게 되었습니다. 이 PPE에는 마스크와 장갑, 얼굴 보호대, 가운 또한 다른 장비들이 포함됩니다. 그러므로 보건국은 가장 취약한 이들을 돌보는 단체와 기관들이 직원과 환자들을 안전하게 돌볼 수 있도록 충분한 PPE를 마련하도록 노력하였습니다. 총 2,400만 개의 개인 보호 장비를 장기 간호시설, 성인 거주 간호시설, 어시스트 리빙, 노숙자 쉘터와 같은 단체들에 나누어 주었습니다. 7월 10일부터 8월 10일까지 1,100만 개의 PPE, 즉 특히 주정부에서 마련된 N95 호흡기와 가운 장갑들을 나누어 주었습니다. 또한 병원에서 일하는 의료서비스 종사자들을 역시 보호받을 수 있도록 병원 시스템 전체에 충분한 양의 PPE가 마련되었습니다. 주정부에서 요구하는 목표인 60%의 병원들이 15일 이상의 PPE 물량을 확보하고 있습니다. 이 물량들과 카운터 현재 PPE 물량으로 우리는 의료서비스 종사자들이 안전하게 일할 수 있다고 확신하고 있습니다. 우리는 가장 취약층과 이들을 돌보는 사람들에게 관심을 나타내는 것이 매우 중요합니다. 가장 취약층과 그 커뮤니티가 질병의 확산, 또 질병률, 사망률을 낮추기 위해서 노력하는 것이 가장 중요합니다. 우리 각 개개인들은 얼굴 가리개를 사용하고 대중이나 함께 살고 있지 않은 사람들과 모이는 것을 멀리하고 가능하다면 집에 머물러 있어야 하며 손을 자주 씻어야 합니다. 우리 자신을 위해서 또 가족들을 위해서 우리 가운데 가장 취약한 사람들을 위해서 우리는 행동을 해야 할 것입니다. 감사합니다. Next, Alan Chang from Environmental Health will brief in Mandarin. Thank you. 感谢卢特委员和索林斯律师和全体督察委员在你们集福同进心和集聚才能引导下我们极大的鼓舞了我们为前线急需要帮助的居民提供服务和支持从疫情开始直到现在各位下午好今天我会将重点介绍自疫情
，例如公共卫生局组建了护士为那些无家可归的人注射疫苗，并指导他们如何联系服务所需要的服务资源，以及进行自我健康保护。去年，我们对无家可归的研究取得了突破突破性进展，在早期工作。研究课题中，我们公布了冠心病是无家可归中的第一杀手。冠心病等疾病是一种隐患，因为这类病人如果感染了 COVID-19， 则后果非常严重，极有可能造成死亡。每天我们为你们提供这些数据的时候，死亡人数中超过百分之九十的人都是患有这类疾病，如高血压。冠心病或糖尿病，我们也知道，正是这类居民如果感染了 COVID-19， 则需要增加医护人员的照顾，也可能需要住院。自疫情开始，我们和各合作伙伴就着手各种努力，采取了各种行动，来自我保护我们最脆脆弱的群体和我们的社区。我们在庇护所实施了各种防护措施，来阻止病毒的传播。我们也采取了各种隔离和防御措施，来限制病毒在庇护所里面传播。等会儿，卫生局的海底女士博士会为你们介绍更多这方面的情况。同时，诺贤也参与了周的项目，项目的名称叫 Room Key， 为这些脆弱的群体及。罗患上述疾病的患者或老年人提供临时的住所，以防止他们受 COVID-19 的感染。这些具有前瞻性的措施对防止大悲剧的扩散非常重要，阻止了收容所和街道上的一些悲剧的产生。我们会一如既往的继续把这些项目坚持下去。我们非常清楚，保护好这些脆弱群体。对重启我们的经济至关重要，这也说明我们为什么一直坚持做好这方面的工作的重要性。一会儿我会为大家展示 COVID-19 对无家可归的群体所带来的影响的一些趋势图。我也会为大家更新首领护理中心方面的资料，首领护理中心的居民也属于需要保护的脆弱群体。同时，我也会为大家更新医护人员方面的资料，他们在尽力照顾我们中最脆脆弱的群体。我们必须为医护人员提供不停的监测。有关大学方面的一些更新，其中督查委员会正在审查的项目之一，在我为。大家具体展示数据前，我想为大家介绍一下大学在重新开学方面的一些方案。毫无疑问，大学是人类创新、文化活动及各类经济活动的重要驱动力。同时，我们也不能忽视的是，大学的运营方式无疑会给 COVID-19 在学生、教职员工之间的传播带来极大的风险，而且这种风险。会辐射到周边的社区。正因为如此，参照周
焦作的指南，我们决定暂且的限制大学的重新开始，直到我们可以减缓病毒在县内的传播到一定的指指标。这就意味着各大学除了可以继续维持其基本的运作外，大部分教学都要通过远程教学来完成。其他培训机构也只能为那些。返回基本行业的劳动者提供面对面的培训和指导，而培训内容也仅限于那些不能通过远程教学完成的部分，所有其他的内容只能通过远程教学完成。教员和员工来教学的目的是为是能为了提供远程教学及与远程教学相关的活动，当然包括维护基本的校园运作。大学必须限制住校的学生人数，只能为那些没有任何其他替代性住住宿的学生提供住宿。最后，大学也可以组织校园体育活动，但仅限于确定校方按照州政府的临时指南制定操作计划后才能够实行。我知道，这种情况对期待住校的学生是一个打击。但这一推迟能够帮助我们延缓病毒的传播，以帮助我们降低社区传播率，到直到开开学的标准后才能够行动。在我为大家提供一些脆脆弱群体相关的资料前，我想为大家更新一些大大家关心的数据。每日简报，很不幸，我们又有五十八个人去世，今天，其中十九人。是八十岁以上的长者，而这十九人中十六个人已经患有其他疾病，有二十四人属于六十五岁到七十九岁之间的人，其中十七人患有其他疾病，十一人是介于年龄五十到六十岁之间，其中九人患有其他疾病，三人的年龄介于三十岁到四十九岁之间，其中。所有三人都患有其他疾病，还有一人是来自于长滩市的政府卫生局报告。这样，洛杉矶县的总共死亡人数就达到了五千一百零九人。我在这为那些因新冠新冠病毒失去亲人的人们致以我诚挚的问候。在这些死亡的人数中，有百分之九十二的人是都是已经患有其他的疾病。在我们已经确认的四千八百零一人已经确认的族裔背景的死者中，有百分之五十的人属于拉丁裔，百分之二十四的属于白人，百分之十五的属于亚裔，百分之十属于非裔。不到百分之一的属于夏威夷群岛或太平洋群岛，而剩下的百分之一属于其他。今天新添的病例为两千四百二十八例，其中包括因州政府的收护而漏报的人数。这样，洛县就有二十一万四千一百九十七人的新冠病例，这其中包括从长滩市的。报上的九千二百一十人
和帕萨迪纳市报上了两千一百三十三人。这两个城市都有自己的公共卫生部门。在无家可归的人中，总共有一千两百七十八人病例患者，其中有三百九十人已妥已得到妥善的安排，进行了隔离和防疫。在住院的人数中，有一千五百三十八人是确诊病人，其中百分之三十二的确诊病人住在加护病房。确诊病人和疑似病例总共加起来是一千九百八十四人，其其中有百分之十九的人在使用呼吸机。我们总共调查了一千四百二十八所。大型居民场所和非居民场所，这些场所中至少有一例新冠病毒病例，其中九百零二例是仍在调查中，五百二十六例已经完成调查。居住场所包括疗养院、辅助居住场所、避难所、治疗中心、加护中心和改造场场所，非居住场所。包括工作场所、食物和零售中心及教育中心。机关总的感染人数、确诊人数为两万九千两百九十五人，其中居住人员为一万五千三百九十人，而。工作人员为一千三百九十一一万三千九百零五人。很不幸，我们有两千三百四十六人的逝者来于机构场所，其中两千一百二十一人是来自熟练护护理场所。在刚刚去世的五十七人中。有八人来自熟练护理场所，这占总共的去世人的百分之十四。监禁场所总共的确诊人数为三千四百八十四，其中三千零九十九属于犯人，而三百八十六为工作人员。县警局。提供的资料显示，其中有二十六个犯人是确诊病人，另外有五十三个犯人已经得到了隔离，还有一千零八十六人已经进行了防御处理。周监狱有一百九十七个病例，其中一百三十七例是犯人。六十例属于工作人员，联邦监狱里面有七百五十七例，其中七百四十一人属于犯人，十六例是属于工作人员。那少管所有一百二十六人，其中五十人属于管是被管理人员，七十六人属于管理人员。这样，洛杉矶县的总共的确诊病人为一百九十八万四千三百九十四人，已经确诊、已经测试的，其中
百分之十属于阳性。从我们用了大概将近十张的那个视图来说明年龄，其中最主要的一个就是最近的，从十六岁、十八岁到四十九岁之间的病例，现在已经占到了总共病例的百分之六十。好，我们现在在。谈一谈最后的解说语。我们非常感谢大家关注这些资料或事实。我们国公共卫生局也会一如既往的监测诺县在疫情方面的进展，同时我们也会时刻关注那些最脆弱的群体和照顾他们的医护人员。同时，我们会把。保证受疫情影响最严重的社区的防护质量的供应当做第一要务，这当然需要我们一起共同努力。作为个人，我们必须继续佩戴口罩，避免群集，避免与家庭成员之外的人聚集。我们应当尽量的待在家中，继续勤洗手。我们要为我们自己、我们家庭和我们。之中最脆弱的群体付诸我们的行动。This concludes for today's briefing. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health podcast.